Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. I knew nothing about poverty, and yet I had this large organization of people depending on me. And I remember saying, Lord, I don't know what to do. It took all my courage to show up today. I literally don't know what to do next. It was almost like the Lord said to me, that's exactly where I want you. I want you helpless and dependent upon me. Just sit back and watch, be faithful, and see what I do. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the UK's leading Christian magazine and it sponsors this show. Here on The Profile, we always like to hear from a guest about their personal life story and also their ministry. We delve in deep into people's lives to hear about what God has been doing through them. I'm delighted to say that my guest on the show today is Richard Stearns. Richard is President Emeritus of World Vision USA, and he's also the author of the new book, Lead Like It Matters to God. Richard, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Sam. Great to be with you. So tell me a little bit about your early life growing up. Were you raised in a Christian family? Actually, I was not. You know, I, uh, I was raised in kind of a challenging home. Uh, my, uh, my parents were divorced uh, when I was about 10. And my father was an alcoholic with an eighth grade education. My mother never went, to, never finished high school. And so, uh, yeah, it was a little shaky at the beginning. Um, we were not a Christian home and, uh, uh, but I saw, you know, as a, even as a young youngster, I saw education as probably my path uh, out of that uh, situation and was fortunate to be able to go to two great universities and get an education and get my life started in a better direction. So tell me a bit about where Christian faith came into the picture for you. If it wasn't a Christian influence from your family, what was your first encounter with Christianity? Well, you know, I went off to Cornell University when I was 18, and uh, that's uh, one of the eight Ivy League colleges here in the U.S., and uh, um, Ivy League colleges have a way of turning you into an atheist, and so uh, <clears throat> by the time I was a senior at Cornell, I was a pretty well-confirmed atheist. I had a, a major in neurobiology, but my senior year, uh, toward the end of the year, I was uh, fixed up on a blind date with a young woman who is now my wife of 46 years, uh, and uh, she was a Christian. And uh, to make a long story short, you know, we had a kind of a deep conversation that first, uh, that first night, that first date. And over the next uh, year or so, as our relationship kind of grew, uh, you know, this faith issue became a big barrier between us. And uh, so I, uh, you know, I set out to do quite a bit of uh, investigation. You know, I was a scientist, right? And so I, I think I read 40 or 50 books on theology and comparative religion and apologetics. And after that, I was now, uh, I'd gone off to the, the Wharton School of Business uh, and I was getting my MBA and 
you know, one day after reading book number 50 or something like that, I, I realized that I now uh, had crossed over from unbelief to belief. And, uh, you know, I prayed one of those prayers, Lord, you know, not sure what I'm doing here, but I want to live my life for you. I want to go where you send me, be what you want me to be. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, I'm yours. Uh, so I'm, I'm all in. And so that was kind of my conversion experience. And, um, I guess I'd say I never looked back, you know, I, I just, uh, had a lot of confidence, uh, going forward. So I jumped into my business career and went forward. Yeah. It's interesting that it's, it sounds like your, your conversion was very much based on intellect and reading solid arguments that stacked up for you. I think sometimes a lot of people assume that, uh, the atheists have all the good arguments, but of course there's not much truth in that, is there? Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I was very much a rational man. You know, I was always uh, moved by logic, uh, and, you know, and I kind of reasoned, uh, if this is not true, why do people go to church? Why, you know, why bother with all of this if it's not true? But if it is true, it changes everything, right? It, it, uh, it changes the entire meaning of our lives. It changes everything about the way we see the world. Uh, and so once I determined that I believed that the story was true that Jesus really was uh, divine and sent by, by God. Uh, it, it just rocked my worldview. And, uh, you know, I made that determination that everything I do and everything I think has to now be informed by this, this, this amazing truth. And, uh, and that's kind of how I tried to live my life since then. What did your parents think when you told them you'd become a Christian? You know, they were, um, they were nominally Roman Catholic, uh, but they, 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 because of the divorces, they, they had been excommunicated. So they never darkened the door of a church, but uh, they were fine. They, they thought it was kind of curious. What's this, all this religious stuff that our son is into. I think at, at one point they thought I might've been in a cult or something, <clears throat> but, um, but they came to terms with it. And I think they saw the change in my life and, you know, uh, I think they were proud of me in the end. And yeah. They thought it was thought it was a phase you might grow out of, but you never grew out of it. Right, right. So tell me what came next after university. Yeah, so uh, Renee, my my girlfriend then and, and, and wife today, we we were married um, shortly after graduation, moved to Boston, and uh, I started my career in business <clears throat> with an entry level job at the Gillette Company, uh, you know, shaving razors and deodorants and things like that. Uh, she went on to law school and got her law degree at Boston College. And, um, and we, we kind of started our family and uh, we ended up having five children. Um, uh, people say, why, why on earth did you have five children? And I, you know, I always say, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time, you know, but it was, uh, uh, but anyways, they're all grown up now and we, we, we wouldn't give any of them back. So uh, yeah, so I had about a 23 year business career. Um, we got very involved with our church, our local church. And uh, um, you know, I, as I like to say, we, we could have been the, the, the poster children for the, you know, the successful Christian life, you know, uh, uh, both of us, you know, kind of prosperous, a great family, uh, five kids and a dog named Snickers, a uh, nice home in the suburbs. And, and then, uh, you know, God kind of rocked my life because uh, right in the middle of my career, I was the CEO of a company called Lennox China, which is the Wedgwood of the United States, if you will. <clears throat> and um, I got a call from an executive recruiter who said that World Vision, this uh, Christian NGO, was looking for a new president. And 
You know, it's an interesting story because uh, my first reaction was I am totally unqualified to be the president of World Vision. I know nothing about poverty. I've never been to the developing world. I, I, I have no theological degree. I have, you know, I have no fundraising background. And uh, so I tried to very quickly uh, disabuse the uh, recruiter of any notion that I could be a candidate for this job. And I thought he would see that clearly. But as, as God would have it, uh, the recruiter asked me this penetrating question, Sam, you know, would you, are you willing to be open to God's will for your life? And, uh, you know, on the surface, that seems like an easy question. Sure. sure I'm open to God's will. You know, that's, uh, of course I am. Uh, but I, but I said, I'm pretty sure this is not it, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but that got me thinking that, uh, well, what if God really was trying to send me a message and call me to this job? And so it led to a kind of a long, uh, several month period of, you know, soul searching. And, you know, I, I tentatively agreed to be a candidate for the job, fully believing they'd never hire me, you know, because the board of directors would come to their senses and hire somebody with more experience. And, when the interview process was complete, uh, they had chosen me. And uh, I was shocked uh, and surprised and a bit panicked because it meant I had to quit my job, uh, sell my house, move my family, uh, take a huge pay cut. Um, and uh, so it was really quite a dramatic turn in our lives. But again, I went back to that first commitment to God, like, I'll go where you send me, I'll do what you call me to do. And, you know, but when that becomes real, I call it my rich young ruler moment where you, you recall the story of the rich young ruler. And the Lord said, you, you lack one thing, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. And he was metaphorically asking me to sell everything I had and give it to the poor and follow him. And so my wife and I decided to do it. I was kind of grudgingly obedient to this. You know, I wasn't uh, joyful or excited. Um, uh, but we did make the change. And the next 20 years I spent at World Vision were the, the, the richest years of my life and just a, a wonderful uh, blessing to my wife and I and our, our kids and our family. How did you know that it was God calling you rather than just, well, it's an interesting job opportunity, but how did you know, no, God is actually in this and this is something that he wants me to do? You know, it's always hard to know God's will for your life, you know, uh, you, you have to try to discern these things. But I, I think for me, it was just a series of so many unusual coincidences, you know, that uh, together, uh, you clearly saw the fingerprints of God in this thing. And, and, and partly no other way to explain it, because um, as I said, I had no qualifications for this job that I could see. And yet the board of directors, which were, you know, a group of 17 or 18 people that were very capable uh, people, very dedicated Christians. They interviewed me and a bunch of other candidates and they said, this is, this is the guy we feel is being called to this job. And, and um, so they took an enormous risk. Um, but, you know, there were, uh, there were signs along the way. Uh, I had a friend who worked at World Vision and um, uh, we'd been friends since before he went to work for the organization back in the seventies, even we were friends. And, uh, and he called me one day out of the blue and said, uh, you know, I've been, uh, first of all, he said that the president of world vision is retiring or resigning and going to another uh, role. 
and World Vision is going to start a search for a new president. And he said, I've been praying about this today. And he said, I don't know how to say this other than to tell you that I heard the Lord's voice saying, it's your friend, Rich. It's your, <laughs> he's going to be the next president of World Vision. It's your friend, Rich. And, uh, and my friend Bill said, look, I don't hear God speak like that very often. But he just said, I just had this very clear sense that this was what I heard. And and of course, I made fun of him. I said, well, you know, it's funny that God hasn't told me that, you know, he's telling you. And uh, and I, I said, Bill, you know, I I have no qualifications. I'm not interested. I'm not available. You know, it's an absurd idea. And uh, and he said, well, I want you to send your resume in. I said, I'm not going to send my resume in. And uh, so anyways, uh, it became kind of a thing between the two of us. And uh, and he got frustrated because he was so certain that, you know, that I should be the the, the candidate. And it was six months went by. And then this recruiter called six months in and with the same thing. Are you interested in this? And my first question would, did my friend Bill call you and put you up? To, he said he didn't even know. He didn't know who Bill was. He's no, he said it has nothing to do with Bill. And, uh, you know, we just found you. You're one of the World Vision donors and we're calling some of our donors. Um, so anyways, it was just a series of inexplicable uh, coincidences and fingerprints. So what does the president of World Vision do? Well, uh, first of all, you have to understand that World Vision is a global organization with many different uh, tentacles. But uh, so I was president of World Vision USA. There's the president of World Vision International, who is uh, basically outside of London and Stockley Park is the office. And uh, his name is Andrew Morley. He's a Brit. And uh, uh, so we're kind of a federation of, you know, a hundred different country offices that all uh, comprise the organization we call the World Vision Partnership. So my chief role was to raise funds in the United States and, and do advocacy, to, to be a voice for the, the work of World Vision, to, to be a voice for poverty and justice issues in our country. And that entailed you know, speaking to multiple constituencies. So the U.S. government, we receive U.S. government grants um, uh, to church leaders and pastors because we're affiliated with a number of churches uh, and to the, the broader swath of donors in the United States, child sponsors and, and people like that. So to be an advocate, to carry the message of World Vision um, wherever I went, and uh, to, you know, as I used to say, to raise $3 million a day, 365 days a year, whether it was easy or not, <laughs> because uh, we raised about $1.2 billion in the United States in total. So uh, that's a huge fundraising challenge. And, uh, and then that money goes to support the programs of World Vision in Africa, Asia, Latin America, you know, the Middle East. And, um, and we have something like 20 offices that fundraise. Uh, the UK is certainly one, but uh, some people are surprised to know that Korea is one of our top fundraising offices. Uh, Hong Kong is one of our top fundraising offices. Taiwan, uh, Australia, uh, New Zealand, uh, Germany, Finland, Switzerland. Uh, you know, we've got offices in all of these countries that, that do advocacy and raise funds. So it's truly a global effort. That's a huge amount of money to uh, be needing to raise as well. What did you learn about how you would convince someone, I suppose, particularly individuals, to, to part with fairly large sums of cash? What did you learn about the best way to 
really sell your ministry to someone and say, we need your support. What, what, what were the sorts of things you said or the sorts of things you did that yeah. helped bring in that kind of revenue? Well, you, you know, first of all, the, the number one thing is you have to have work that has integrity and quality to back up your fundraising. You know, you, it's hard to ask people to give to something that doesn't work or is poorly managed or poorly run. And so um, the first priority is to make sure that the work was top-notch and world-class. And, you know, for example, World Vision now is the, the number one provider of clean water and sanitation the number one non-governmental provider of clean water and sanitation in the world, bringing clean water to three and a half million people a year, roughly. And uh, so that requires tremendous technical expertise, hydrogeologists, you know, massive drilling rigs with crews that know how to operate them, um, you know, water testing facilities. Um, uh, and then you have to do the behavior change part of it, you know, uh, training people to use latrines and, and training them about hand washing and how to manage a water source and a water point and, so it's tremendously complex. We use solar technology for pumping in many locations. Sometimes we have water systems that serve 100,000 people. Uh, so they're not just little little borehole wells that you hand pump. Some of them are, but uh, some of them are massive water systems. So you have to really get good at this stuff and, and, and know what you're doing. And the same is true for microfinance, where you know we're giving um, more than half a billion dollars a year out in small loans. And uh, uh, we have over a million microfinance clients around the world. And so the quality of World Vision's work is really the most important priority. Um, but with high net worth donors, you, you, you have to kind of involve them. You know, you, if, if you want to ask someone for a million dollars, you have to, they want to kick the tires. They want to meet uh, the CEO. They want to go and see the work in Africa or Asia, wherever you're doing it. They, they want to see the people who are doing the work on the ground and, so you have to build trust and credibility with those uh, folks and you have to give them very detailed reports of you know, what you've done with their money and, and, and uh, how you've used it and what outcome you've, you've achieved. So um, just, you know, it's like any business has customers, right? And uh, so it's a little funny to call them customers, but they're buying our product, which is, hey, you give us money and we will deliver results uh, that help the poor uh, around the world, and we'll show you those results. And uh, if we do that well, you know, they keep giving. Mm. What changes have you observed in the Christian community, especially in the US, when it comes to just general Christian attitudes towards poverty and um, even biblical interpretation on some of these things? Have, have mm -hmm. there been shifts in the, in the time, not only that you were president for, for 20 years of World Vision, but actually in your lifetime, have you seen a shift amongst the general Christian population in how we think about poverty and the importance of uh, really ministering in those areas? Yeah, you know, I think one of the megatrends <clears throat> over the last, you know, 40 or 50 years in the US, and this is a, this is kind of a trend that has you know, ebbed and flowed during the entire history of the church. It's this tension between social action and preaching the gospel, right? <clears throat> so you have one school of thought that says, you know, we should not be involved in all this social action stuff. It's a distraction and we should just preach the gospel. And, uh, and then you've got another extreme that says, you know, we should deeply get involved in social action, you know, and preaching the gospel is not a priority, but people are hungry, people are thirsty, you know, people are refugees, we need to help them. And, um, and these two camps, if you will, uh, are always uh, quarreling about, you know, what, 
what does God want from us? You know, what, what is God's expectation of us? What, and, and you could say it's, uh, you know, one group says that the great commandment to love our neighbors is the most important. And the other group says the great commission to make disciples in other nations and all nations is most important. And of course, world vision would take the approach that no, it's both, it's both. And, and so there's always been a group of people that, that say, no, it's, it's really both, you know, and um, you know, we can't, we can't live isolated lives and, and, and be blind to the needs of our fellow man. And we, we have to help the homeless and the poor and the hungry and, and we're commanded to do it. And, uh, and yet we also, you know, want to do it with the gospel on our lips and, and uh, the truth that we uh, to share the hope that's within us with, with people. So, so that's one mega trend and that, you know, right now, um, uh, it's kind of the pendulum is kind of swinging back toward the preach the gospel only in the United States. And, you know, it's no secret to folks in Europe that, you know, president Trump uh, spent four or five years demonizing people from other countries and demonizing the poor, the immigrants, the refugees, and, uh, and putting America first, you know, America first, second, and third. So this kind of rhetoric that is constantly being, you know, spoken at the highest levels, uh, I think creates a more difficult environment uh, in the Christian community in the United States for raising uh, funds to actually help these people, right? You know, so uh, it, it's just uh, you feel like you're you're advocating with a with a strong wind in your face, right? You know that the the, the, the wind is blowing in the wrong direction. Whereas you know in the early 2000s the wind was blowing in the right direction uh, for organizations like World Vision. You know, President Bush who was also controversial in many ways, but um, of all recent presidents, he tripled U.S. foreign assistance to, to the poor. I mean, he literally tripled, in, and his his AIDS initiative was something that, you know, he's a hero in Africa because of the money he poured into Africa to slow down AIDS and to uh, to bring, you know, medicines in and, and antiretroviral drugs. And so during that 10 years, you had the, you know, the founding of the Gates Foundation, you had Bono very active uh, on these issues, you had the Clinton Global Initiative. And so there was a tremendous optimism that we could, you had the Millennium Development Goals uh, that the, the, the UN uh, put out. So it was tremendous optimism that we could uh, make a huge difference. And, and a huge difference was made. I mean, all the statistics moved in the right direction in terms of poverty. And then more recently, you know, with a big recession in 2009, uh, global recession, uh, nine and 10, and then Trump's election, you know, just the wind is, has blown in a different direction and caused the United States and not only the United States, but to be more uh, inwardly focused, right? Uh, turning away from the needs of the rest of the world and say, let's take care of ourselves uh, first. So it, it's been a, a challenging uh, series of, uh, you know, swings in public opinion and those issues. It's early days, of course, but are there any signs as to where Joe Biden and his administration may take things on that um, that pendulum swing, as you describe, of, of are we being inward looking and caring about ourselves or are we going to be a bit more globally minded? Are there any signs which direction Joe Biden might go in? Well, there's no question that uh, President Biden is much more of a globalist, you know, and getting us back into the Paris Climate Accords and trying to restart the Iran nuclear treaty and, uh, um, you know, reaching out to our, our allies to say, hey, you know, we, 
we are your friends. We do want to cooperate. We, we value uh, collaboration for the greater good and for peace. So I think there's no question that he ran on that platform uh, that he would uh, be much more um, engaging of the rest of the world and, and, and doing things together instead of being more isolated. So yeah, that is definitely his intent um, as the president, as you know, uh, a lot of these things require the approval of Congress, and that's not so easy. Uh, these democracies are messy. Uh, the UK democracy is messy as well. And um, yeah, so, and I think uh, generally much more supportive of foreign assistance issues, uh, much more supportive of, uh, um, you know, development. Uh, we used to talk about the three Ds of foreign policy, uh, diplomacy, development, and defense, you know, and so a strong defense, uh, good diplomacy, and, uh, and development is actually a way of, uh, you know, development meaning, you know, foreign assistance for the poorest countries, helping their economies to stabilize and grow and, you know, create opportunity for their citizens. That's actually a peacekeeping strategy because uh, countries who have growing economies with growing opportunities are much less likely to become unstable and, you know, start conflicts and wars and, you uh, uh, so there, there, I think the Biden administration believes in that kind of uh, uh, development as a form of diplomacy. Holier than thou. Radical. Delusional. Ignorant. Perfect. It's time to challenge stereotypes about Christians, and Premier Christianity is leading the way. Transform your perceptions, broaden your horizons, open your mind to wide-ranging views. Read interviews with politicians, theologians, and TV presenters. Discover the breadth of the Christian spectrum. Be provoked, react, inspired, and informed. Get the print magazine and full online access for just £4.95 a month. Subscribe today at premierchristianity.com. Premier Christianity magazine. The bigger picture. You've um, spoken before about how sometimes Christians, I think, can be a bit naive when it comes to uh, poverty. And you've spoken about the need to have good business structures around even churches. If you're fighting in this area against poverty, you need to have good business sense, really. But what would you say to someone who, who looks at the landscape of Christian charity after Christian charity, raising millions and millions of pounds or dollars, secular charities doing good work as well, and someone sits here and, and just thinks... Well, we're throwing all of this money at this problem of glo global poverty. Is mm -hmm. it actually doing anything? Is it actually getting any better? Because it seems like charities are constantly fundraising. And I think sometimes people get a bit fed up of not hearing any good news. Is there any good news uh, oh. to speak of when it comes to poverty relief? <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, the probably the, 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 the story that remains too untold is the story of progress, um, and there's a reason for that, you know, that, um, first of all, I'll tell you, we've made tremendous progress uh, against poverty. When I joined World Vision in 1998, I think the statistic was that 30,000 children were dying every day of preventable causes, 30,000, a terrible number, um, children under, under the age of five, and they're dying from waterborne diseases, lack of clean water, uh, poor neonatal care, they're dying in childbirth, they're dying of malaria, they're dying you know, many different causes, pneumonia, respiratory infections, uh, lack of health care, you know, for them. And so 30,000 children were dying every day. Bono used to call this what, what he called stupid poverty. You know, stupid poverty is poverty that is needless. You know, these children needlessly die, but for the lack of, 
you know, a 20 cent medication to help with their diarrhea, you know, that they, they can be, they can be saved these lives. Well, today that number is about 15,000 children die every day. So in the last 25 years, it's been cut in half. It's been cut in half. Um, all the statistics of poverty have been going in the right direction for the last 25 years. Um, literacy has gone from, adult literacy has gone from something like 43% in the 1970s to 80, 84%, you know, today uh, in terms of people's ability to read. Um, education has improved. Uh, access to clean water in just since 1990, 2 billion people have gained access to clean water that didn't have it before. So tremendous progress in these statistics. So why is that story not told very often? Well, the problem is the charities want to keep doing the work. So they, they have to keep raising money. And the tendency is to continue to tell people how bad things are because the reasoning is that'll help, that'll get them to give more money if they, if they hear these bad statistics. And if we tell them all the good statistics, they may take their foot off the accelerator and say, well, we don't need to give anymore. I think that's fallacious because, you know, the, what the donor loves to hear is, you know, that money you've been giving every year for 20 years, it's working. It's making a difference. Keep giving, you know, because we're, we're winning this war. And, uh, and of course, there have been institutions like the Gates Foundation that have made a huge difference as well. So um, there's a good story to tell there. I, it's interesting. I've heard some people even say that there's been cases where charities have solved problems, um, but because the charity then exists with employees and, you know, you've got to keep people employed, they've tried to carry on, even though the problem's been solved. They don't want to close the yeah. charity because you, you then got employees of people who rely on a paycheck every month. Well, actually, that's one of my pet peeves, because uh, what I like to say about World Vision is we're one of the few charities that likes to say goodbye. Um and our whole model is based on uh, helping a community. Let's say it's a rural community in Africa. Um, our goal is to help that community stand on its own two feet and to become self-sufficient. And so we, we, we invest a huge amount of effort in training up leadership in that community, forming uh, little committees uh, that define their civil society. So we, we, we start savings groups. We start women's health collectives. Uh, we, we start farmers cooperatives. Um, uh, just literally dozens of small committees and groups of, of people that we organize around problem issues uh, in the community. Uh, we create like, parent-teacher associations to advocate uh, in their schools you know, for better education. And, um, and then we also bring in some of the things that they don't have the capacity, like most communities don't have the capacity to develop their own clean water system. And if their government doesn't have the money to do it, you know, World Vision will go in and drill, you know, some boreholes and create some water points. And then we'll form a water committee and they have to manage those water points. They actually collect money from the users so that they can do repairs when the pump breaks down. And, and then we stay for typically 12 to 15 years in a community doing all of this work, addressing some of the root causes of their issues and poverty. And then, as I like to say, we hand the keys to them and say, you can drive now. We've taught you what we, we, we've helped you solve your own problems. You know, we've, we've taught you some skill sets that you can now use. And we will literally pull out of that community and we'll have kind of a two-year exit plan. And uh, we hand over all of the work to the leadership that's been uh, developed in that community. And, uh, you know, this sounds a bit paternalistic and it, it's not meant to because, what we're recognizing is the dignity of the poor, that 
the poor have just as much intelligence as the rich. <laughs> they just don't have the opportunities uh, or, or the educational opportunities. And so we try to help them realize their God-given potential, uh, knowing that they have the capacity within their community to, to address these issues themselves with just a little bit of guidance and help from the outside. And then they have, uh, they enjoy the dignity of being able to support their own community, support their own families uh, without, most people don't like to take charity handouts, right? And, you know, a short phrase I use is we don't like to give people handouts. We like to give people a hand up. And, um, but I do think there are many charities and this, this troubles me that um, they create dependencies, right? Like if you've heard the old thing, if you give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. If you teach a man to fish, he'll eat for a lifetime. I paraphrase that, you know, if you give a man a fish, uh, he'll come back tomorrow uh, for another fish. And if you give him a fish on the second day, on the third day, he'll bring a friend uh, and you'll give them both free fish. And on the next day, uh, the fishermen will show up at the World Vision office and they'll, and they'll say, we stopped fishing because we heard there were free, free fish available. <laughs> and so you have to be really careful not to just give things to people without any expectation on their part uh, <clears throat> that they have to earn it or they have to work for it. And so we're, we're, we try to be very careful about that to, to let people understand that, you know, hard work produces results. And we have found in, in general, the poor are among the hardest working people you'll ever meet. I mean, just, just surviving is hard work for the poor. How big a problem has COVID been for the developing world? Because right now at the time of recording, all of our media here in the UK is focused on India and the terrible numbers of deaths. And even the UK government is talking about sending ventilators to India because the problem there is so significant. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, some people have argued or pointed out that forever how many thousands of people are dying right now in India from COVID, many thousands more will be dying from a result of poverty. And so in context, some people would argue COVID in the developing world is actually not the big issue. It's instead underlying issues that were present long before COVID. Do you have a view on that? Well, uh, yes. I mean, COVID is a real problem for poor communities and poor countries for a variety of reasons. But, um, you know, the the lockdowns and, and some of the... Uh, measures that governments have taken to reduce the spread of COVID are having economic impact. So we see it in our own economies, you know, in, in Europe and the United States, uh, this, this has a real economic impact, but it also has a kind of a crushing impact on the poor because many jobs are being lost. People are not able to go to work because their jobs have been eliminated. And if you're living on the margin without savings and without safety nets, um, it throws people into despair and poverty much more quickly. You know, there's no unemployment check coming from the government or bailout package that's coming to help them. And so on one hand, it's really hurting the poor economically. Uh, and we're seeing things like early marriage, which has been kind of a blight in some societies where, you know, 10, 11, 12 year old girls are being married off to older men. And um, early marriage has accelerated because of uh, COVID because as a family feels fewer and fewer resources coming in, the, the father is more likely to get his daughter married off sooner because there will be a bride price that he'll be paid, you know, maybe three, three cattle or something like that. And so more girls are being forced into early marriage as one of the symptoms of, uh, of COVID and what COVID is doing. So I think um, 
those issues are, are real and they're affecting the poor uh, in dramatic ways. You mentioned India, I think just the other day, 350,000 new cases, um, a world record. Uh, the United States held that record for a while with 310,000 cases one day, I think. But, but now the U.S. is down to maybe 60,000 cases a day compared to India at 350. And they just don't have the infrastructure. And they have huge population density in the cities of India. You know, it's a $1.3 billion billion, uh, person population. Uh, And I I think uh, I shudder to think what could happen in the developing world if we if we don't help them uh, get COVID under control. And so I I know our government is talking about maybe shipping vaccines over. Uh, You know, we we can have a false sense of security. Uh, UK is an island. And if you can if you can squash COVID in the UK, maybe you're you're all going to be safe. But if it's exploding in India or exploding in Africa or Brazil, uh, there is international travel. It, you know, these variants and mutations will continue to develop and they will make their way into the United States and the UK and, and, and Europe. And, and uh, it's going to be, we're going to have to see this movie all over again, right? You know, that, so it's very important that we take a whole world approach to vaccination and containment. It's interesting you say that. I think there was a, a bit of a dawning of that very point on us in the UK just a few months ago where you suddenly started to see people in the media make that exact point of hang on a minute if we don't solve COVID for everyone we haven't solved it at all because of what you've just said about international Mm -hmm. travel and I think there is this understanding now that um, while from a Christian point of view we would want to be generous to other countries anyway even from a purely pragmatic point of view if you want your society to be open and normal you need to make sure other societies are as well and have that global perspective. So you do wonder almost in that sense if COVID might help some people to have a more global perspective, even though the reason is perhaps more pragmatic than it is generosity-based. No, I think that sadly that's true. I mean, uh, you have to appeal to people's, uh, you know, what's what's in it for me? You know, you have to appeal to that side of them. And, you know, so, you know, you like to say, well, there's there's several reasons to do this. You know, one is for our own good and for our own safety, but the other is, you know, just for humanity, right? Because these are human beings too. They have families, they have children. And uh, why wouldn't we want to help our neighbor uh, through a difficult time if we have the ability to do it? So you, you try to appeal to their better angels and maybe appeal to some of their darker angels as well that, um, uh, but you, you build the case that, you know, this is good for all of us. And I think that's the case for foreign assistance in general. I mean, I think the United States gives foreign assistance again, like I said earlier, because this is this is this helps with world peace. It helps unstable nations become more stable. It it prevents military uh, operations from being necessary. Um, you know, uh, th- there's a phrase I heard uh, at, at a conference a couple of years ago that I loved, and it goes like this: "We're all better off when we're all better off." You know, so. It works within a nation. You know, if if everybody in the UK society is better off, then everybody that lives in the UK is better off, including the wealthy, right? And so, when we can help the majority of people, you know, believe that they have a better life and opportunities, uh, the whole society benefits. What was the best day of your career at World Vision, and what was the worst day? Oh, gee. Uh, that's, that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I, there were a lot of best days, you know, um, when, when you work for an organization that is literally saving lives and bringing hope, uh, to 
to communities and families. There's a lot of things to celebrate. And I can remember many celebrations. You know, I think I traveled 3 million air miles in my 20 years to all over the world. And, you know, the day that the, the, the well drilling crew, crew strikes water in a community and there's a gusher of clean water coming out of the ground and, and, and the women and girls just break out in tears because uh, they, their mothers, their grandmothers, their great grandmothers have spent their whole lives uh, walking seven or eight kilometers to fetch water and carrying these heavy buckets back on their head. And, and now they realize that this water source is going to be just a hundred steps from their doorway, you know, and that, that, that the, the painful labor is going to come to an end and, and the waterborne diseases will come to an end. And so tremendous days like that, that um, just lots of small things to celebrate, you know, uh, on a constant basis. Um, you know, best, uh, worst day. Um, you know, I tell the story in my book of, uh, my first day at the office at World Vision after I'd come from Lenox, uh, China, you know, the Wedgwood of the U.S. And here I had been selling fine China to the wealthy for 11 years at that point. And, and, and all of a sudden, I find myself in my office at World Vision for the very first day. I came in early to, to kind of pray and kind of get ready to steal myself for what faced me. I was... Uh, I felt totally inadequate, totally uh, unequipped, ill-equipped for uh, to do the job. Again, I knew nothing about poverty, and yet I had this large organization of people depending on me. And I remember saying, "Lord, I I don't know what to do." It took all my courage to show up today. I I, I literally don't know what to do next, and um, I feel helpless. I feel like I don't have the knowledge or the skill set. And it was almost like the Lord said to me that's exactly where I want you. I want you helpless and dependent upon me. For most of your career, you have not been helpless and dependent upon me. You've been dependent on yourself and your skill sets and whatever, your education. And uh, it was almost like he was saying, just sit back and watch, be faithful and see what I do, you know? And uh, over the next 10 years, the, the revenues at World Vision US tripled and uh, we were able to help a lot more people. And uh, uh, you know, and I just kind of took it one day at a time and said, all right, Lord, you know, need, I need a little help here. You know, I'm not sure what to do. I got to make a decision. And, but it was, you know, that first day was pretty dark, right. And, uh, feeling overwhelmed. And, you know, when, when you have a job that involves kind of saving the lives of children around the world, that's a pretty heavy load to carry by yourself. And I think one reason humanitarian workers burn out uh, too soon is that they, they carry this terrible weight of responsibility. And I realized that as a Christian, I didn't have to carry this responsibility alone that, you know, I used to say to my team, you know, God loves these children more than we do. So we just need to do our best and trust God for the outcomes. And, you know, let's not, let's not carry this home with us every night that, you know, if we don't, if we make a mistake, you know, people are going to die. And uh, so just kind of a, a perspective that you have to have as a humanitarian worker. Well, that brings us to your new book, um, which I'd love to talk about, Lead Like It Matters to God. So tell me a bit about 
how this book came about because there's a lot of leadership books out there, both in the in the Christian and the the mainstream worlds. There's a lot of leadership books out there. What was it that you wanted to bring to that whole that whole genre, really, of books? Um, distinctively, given your experience and your perspective yeah. as a Christian, what was what was it that you were seeking to communicate through this new book? You know, uh, prior to this book, I had written three other books, and all three of those were books about poverty and justice issues. And probably the most notable was a book called The Hole in Our Gospel that was uh, really a, a call to Christians to respond to poverty and justice issues. In, in, in the United States, it was Christian Book of the Year in 2010, and a lot of people bought it and read it. And uh, <clears throat> so for me to write a book on leadership was was a very big departure. But, you know, I I had just retired from World Vision. Uh, my entire career was about 44 years, and I spent about half of it in the secular world, uh, CEO of two different American companies, uh, Parker Brothers Games, um, which is the maker of Monopoly in the U.S. I think in the U.K. it might be Waddington's or something that sells uh, Monopoly, but um, and then the Lennox, uh, CEO of Lennox. And um, uh, and then the second half of my career, I spent in Christian ministry in a nonprofit environment, um, you know, global NGO. And so, you know, I, I felt like, you know, I've, I've had leadership roles in very different disparate situations. And so I, I've learned a thing or two along the way about leadership and about specifically Christian leadership. You know, what, what is the uniqueness of the Christian leader and what, how, how should Christian leaders be different and so I, I wanted to write a book about uh, leadership from a Christian point of view. And uh, the, the subtitle of the book is Values-Driven Leadership in a Success-Driven World. So one of my primary observations is that in the United States, and I suspect this is true in the UK, we live in, uh, we live in a success-oriented culture. We celebrate the successful uh, you know, the wealthiest people, the, the, the most famous CEOs, the fastest growing companies, the biggest churches, the most famous pastors or celebrities, um, you know, even our teams, you know, uh, which soccer team is going to win the World Cup. And, you know, we celebrate these, these, these sports uh, figures and, and teams. So we're, we're kind of marinating in success. And this success, this, this obsession for success seeps into the church, right? It seeps into Christian ministries. And there's nothing wrong with having successful outcomes as an organization. Certainly, we, we want successful outcomes. But when we let success become an idol in our lives, uh, uh, it becomes obsessive, right? And, and we, we start to want to be successful at all costs, at all costs. And um, and, you know, I, the, the genesis of this book was a little story about Mother Teresa, who was once asked by a, a U.S. senator years ago, Mother Teresa, don't you feel like a failure because you've worked in Calcutta your entire life and poverty is worse today than it was when you began? And Mother Teresa answered with these words. She said, my dear senator, God did not call me to be successful. He called me to be faithful. And I think with those, I think, 14 words, she turned our leadership paradigms inside out and upside down, you know, that for the Christian leader, success is faithfulness, you know, that God cares more about our character than he does about our accomplishments. And, you know, we all sometimes imagine the day we'll stand before the Lord and give an accounting for our lives. And, you know, I say in the introduction of the book, I can't imagine that God is going to be impressed that I was a CEO when I was 33 or that I you know, had this title on my business card, or I made this amount of money by the time I was 40, or, 
uh, I did this big real estate deal and, uh, you know, it was a huge success. And I don't think any of those things are going to be significant achievements when we stand before the Lord. He's going to say, what was your character like? How did you treat the people in your circle, the people you led? Um, did you represent me as my ambassador in your workplace uh, with, with, with honor and with uh, integrity? And, uh, you know, how did you care for your family and, and your friends and your community and your church? And, you know, those are going to be the things that matter in the end. So my book is kind of a call to Christian leaders. To, to don't drink this success Kool-Aid work hard, do your best, um, but realize that your first and foremost job is to be an ambassador for Christ wherever you work. If you work in the government, you're an ambassador for Christ. If you work as an Uber driver, you're, you're, you're an ambassador for Christ, you know? Absolutely. Well, Richard Stearns, it's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure to talk to you about all things leadership and your time at World Vision as well. The new book is out now and uh, you get it wherever books are sold. Of course, Lead Like It Matters to God, values-driven leadership in a success-driven world. Richard, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to talk. Thank you, Sam. It was a good, good conversation. Thank you so much for downloading the Profile podcast this week. It's been great to have your company. Hope you enjoyed that conversation I had with Richard Stearns from World Vision USA. If you have been enjoying the Profile podcast and all the many hundreds of interviews we've done, we'd really appreciate it if you could give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. It helps other people to discover the show and check out the interviews that we're putting out. Want to say a special thank you to Martin in Barnsley who gave us a review this week and said, Wonderful interview by Sam with the new Archbishop of York. What a warm and inspirational character. Thank God for calling people like him to the higher offices. Thank you, Martin, for taking the time to give us your feedback. Please join Martin in giving us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. We'd so appreciate it. And we'll see you same time, same place next week with another great conversation for you coming up. Until then, have a great rest of your weekend. Take care.